I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. As I shared last week in our short little mini-sode, we are in the sweet and tender wrap-up phase of this podcast, friends, which will be ending on July 21st. There will be a wonderful new episode every other week. Until then, starting with today's conversation in which you'll get to meet my friend, Kenneth Mackins. My dad was not a dad to me either. I didn't miss it because I left him when I was three, so I didn't know him. Um, but later in life, I did have a few like bouts of crying about you know the lack of that in my life. So I, I, I obviously just I, I, I try to be the best like loving, fun, thoughtful daddy that I can be to him. Whether that's you know you want to go kick the soccer ball around or you know do you want to paint type stuff, whatever it is. I just want him to have a feeling of comfort in me that I always watched my friends with dads around and just be like, oh man, like his dad could just pick him up from school. <laughs> like, I wish I had that. So I just hope to be that for him. Kenneth and I have been friends for almost 20 years. And this conversation is a deep dive into the wildly different life choices that we have each made in those two decades. Kenneth and his wife have been together for 14 years now. They have one kid with another on the way, and he works for a U.S.-based multinational corporation in human resources. Basically the opposite of my life. (laughs) He shares honestly about prioritizing a more stable path, what the transition to fatherhood was like, how tough it can be to feel successful enough, and to even define what that means, right? Like what is successful enough, and lots more. Kenneth is such a beloved person in my life, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. That will start for you in just a moment, but not before I thank our truly incredible Patreon community, the 400-plus people who have made this listener-funded show possible for the past six years. I was really uncertain back in 2015 of whether or not a listener-funded show that could eventually pay everyone involved, the guests, the sound engineer, the host, the transcriptionist, if that was even possible. Creating this podcast in this way felt like such a huge leap into the unknown for me. And the people in my Patreon community who took that leap, you know, alongside me are folks for whom I will always be deeply, deeply grateful. And even though this particular podcast is ending, our Patreon community is not. Those folks and I are currently in the fun process of co-creating the next phase of this work together. And it would be a delight to have you join us if you feel drawn to a space that prioritizes honesty, intimacy, and possibility with monthly essays, live gatherings, audio content, and more. That community operates on a sliding scale, with all tiers getting access to absolutely everything, and you can find us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Okay, friends, let's get into today's episode. All right, we are good to go. Kenneth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I feel like you are someone that I always, in my head, use your full name. Like, it's not, it's like Kenneth Mackins. And then that makes me think of high school, like you getting announced for football, like number nine, Kenneth Mackins. Like, it's like this whole title in my head. It's never just your name. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you. Um, It was number nine, right? That's a correct memory. It was number nine, our senior year. Yeah, yeah, number nine, Kenneth Mackins. Very, um, that's me. Yeah, well, I mean, half the time I refer to you as Lauren in my head. So that's an interesting one. You remind me. Yeah, I was... Remember in high school when you used to call me Lauren? What was that about? 
I, I had hung out with some, a friend of a friend, like this group of people. And there was this person named Lauren there who I met bef- like, honestly, it must've been a week before I actually met you for the first time. And when I saw you, I was like, Oh, Lauren, ha ha ha. And for some reason you didn't tell me I was an idiot and not to call you that. So I thought it was a funny joke for a bit. Yeah, great joke. Solid burn, man. <laughs> it wasn't a burn. You just, you were the better version of this person that I met. So I was excited about that. Oh, well, thanks. Well, then maybe you should have called her Nicole. I never really saw her again. So I would have, for sure. There you go. I, I am the long lasting Lauren. Exactly. <laughs> the everlasting Lauren. The other thing that I remember, I mean, many things from high school, but I remember that you used to call me Lauren, that you used to give me a really hard time about everything, and that you used to tell me that I had dainty wrists. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, that is so funny. Like, yeah. Well, that's good, you know? Um, yeah, I did. And it must have been, I mean, you never really grab people's wrists, but something must have happened where I shook your hand and saw your wrist, and I was like, oh, wow. These are quite dainty. They just look fragile. You know, it's not that it was a bad thing to be. I just wanted to be more careful around you. So That's great. You wanted yeah. to be really careful of my wrist situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I w- I'll still think about that sometimes, like, in the shower, and I, like, have my hand on my wrist, and I'm like, oh, remember when I had dainty wrists 20 years ago? <laughs> yeah, I, I find myself adjusting my watch band outward. So if you can keep yours the same and dainty, then more power to you. There you go. Um, here's a random question to put you on the spot. What's one of your favorite things about our friendship? Let's just go there. Oh, man. Favorite things, favorite things. Other than the longevity, I would say that I I like that you and I, at least back when we first met each other, were so different from our friend group. I don't know what that means, really, but like just we could talk about the BS and joke with each other a lot and like we just got each other you know that's kind of what I look in people today like the people who I get along with are the people who get my sense of humor so I think the fact that you get me is like yeah I can actually talk to and mess around with Nicole because she actually understands that I'm not being a jerk yeah, I, I know I've said this to you before, but I don't and I don't know when it's gonna happen, but I'm actively very excited for you to meet my partner because I feel like there's like a sense of humor thing, like a very high on like the bullshit scale that you guys both have in common that I I you are someone who when you start saying something in my head, I'm like, is this real or is this bullshit? And that's a question that I like actually ask Jen all the time. Like he'll start talking and something will ping for me. And I'm like, how much attention do I have to pay to this? And I will look at him and say, is this real or is this bullshit? And then he has to tell me. And then that changes how I listen to it. So I'm almost nervous for you too. I feel like I'm going to get ganged up on quite a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, if that's how you feel about him, that's the story of my life. Uh, just, (laughs) People always thinking that I'm being sarcastic. I mean, half the time I am, so I don't fault them. But when I'm with my wife, people just listen to what I say and then look at her for confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> like, is this surreal? Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of it is my voice. I tend to just sound like I'm being a like radio announcer when I'm telling people stuff. And so it just sounds like I'm joking around with them. You do have a good radio voice. Maybe this is your uh, career change moment coming on this podcast. <laughs> Well, thank you. Mm. Yeah. Listeners, uh, stay tuned for me to launch my own podcast. Right. Soon. Oh, my God. I, what even would your podcast be? <sighs> I don't know. I would, it, I would, I would, I don't know. Whatever it would be, I'd get in trouble for it. I know that. I'd say yeah, something that's, that's that would true. misrepresent my company or my family or my <laughs> significant other in some way that gets me in <laughs> some sort of trouble. 
Cool. So I will try to rein you in today. One of my favorite things, this is like a tiny thing, there's obviously more about you that I love than this, but I like that you are such a phone person. I feel like other folks in our, I don't know, age demographic and maybe like a little bit younger, it's a thing of like, oh my God, don't call me. Just text me. Like the people don't want to talk on the phone. I, not surprisingly, love talking on the phone. And my communication style is like random middle of the day phone calls. Like let's not schedule a call. Like just, I'm going to call you at some random day at like 8.30 in the morning and you're so down for that. And I feel like that is one of the reasons we've been able to stay in such like good touch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- thanks. I would say I, obviously utilize text messages all the time, but there are a few people that I'm just like, I kind of just want to talk to you. And whether it's with a, an actual agenda of something I don't want to talk to, or just the feeling of using your mouth and feeling what people are saying through how they sound. Yeah. I think that's like, that's being lost on people. And mm-hmm. I enjoy that. Hence why, uh, our friend Jonathan and I talk on the phone almost every day. My God, when I, so yeah, I, you and Jonathan are my longest time friends. I am not really friends with anyone from my childhood. I moved around too much. I'm oddly not in touch with anyone that I went to college with and like no one else really from high school. It's just the two of you. And when I found out, this was a couple months ago, when I found out that you two talk on the phone every day, I don't know why I found that to be so delightful, but that's like one of my favorite things now to know that I just imagine you like, just like little old ladies, just like on the phone every day. Yeah, it's basically yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, yeah. No, we um we actually started talking on the phone in college, like not as regularly because you know you had minutes on your phone and you would run out. But oh God, remember that? <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> right, and like it, only calling people after seven p.m. because that's when you had like the free nights and weekends. Mm-hmm, God, are we dating ourselves right now? <laughs> right. Good thing we were uh, at least I was still on the west coast. You had gone to the east, but. Yeah, um, we started talking about like whatever. Usually it was just girl problems. Like, I met this girl. I'm not going to actually talk to her though. Um, you should talk to her. Nah, she doesn't seem into me. And then, yeah, it just keeps going to this day. I think moving myself when we moved to the East Coast, it obviously increased that because I don't see him ever. But uh, yeah, no, love talking on the phone. It's good. The art of the long distance friendships. Yeah, the, you, you realize which friendships really count. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel because I've moved around so much, a lot of my friendships are long distance and a lot of my friendships tend to be like, obviously we're talking about a mutual friend right now, but I don't really have a friend group so much like in Bend a little bit that I have friends that know each other and like a group that would, you know, come together for some activities or holidays or something. But for the most part, I have really strong individual friendships with people who don't know each other, which is fine. And also sometimes can be a little bit more work because there's no kind of group togetherness and you're right like there there definitely is there are only so many of those types of relationships that you have like the capacity for yeah 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 true and it can be hard having that individual you know a lot of individual friends uh rather than a single group uh because our i have a smaller group of friends that you know the effort of getting together it's not just me trying to make it happen right you have six other people who are giving a little bit of effort to it so it happens a little more easily that way but it doesn't happen enough mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay so getting in the time machine going way back to before we met yeah whatever the time machine noises are i don't have that kind of podcast but feel free to make time machine noises if you like um 
What was your childhood like? Tell me a little bit about your family and who little Kenneth was. Yeah, I am from Virginia, actually. And my parents got divorced when I was three. And my mom's parents had moved to California years before. So when my mom needed somewhere to be, she took myself, my brother, who's two years older, and my sister, who's six years older, uh, to California. And we lived with my grandparents for... I thought it was like a month or something. And I realized it was about like two years. We lived with my grandparents in Thousand Oaks, uh, where you and I ultimately met. And yeah, just lived with a single mom for my entire life to going to college. Uh, We were, you know, I would say, oh, I'd say poor, but like thinking back on it and what I am able to provide for my family now, like, yeah, I'd say we're probably poor. But yeah, played the sports, was a horrible student always. Uh, never, I had massive ADD. I took, um, what is it called? Not Adderall, but the other one, Ritalin, for about a year or so. But my mom said it turned me into like a zombie. Uh, so she took me off of that, and I just sort of struggled through it. Uh, hardly, I didn't really give effort towards school until like my senior year. Uh, by that time, it's kind of too late. So luckily, I ended up with a football scholarship that got me to college on the bare minimum academically. But yeah, so gosh, more about my life, though. Growing up, little Kenneth, I was a horrible little kid. Like when my, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was the energetic kid who wouldn't stop jumping off of stuff or touching stuff or pushing the limits, right? That um, totally checks out. Yeah. yeah. And that is my son today. He is that. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, are you getting payback right now? Is Winston like just jumping off everything? A hundred percent. Yesterday, my wife, I came into the room and she's like, you should have just seen Winston. He was going over to the drawer that you had just told him not to open. And he went to open it. I said, no. And he shook his head. Yes. <laughs> and then like reached for it and then like walked away. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I'm getting it back. Everyone always told me this would happen, and it's happening. I'm excited. I like seeing myself in him. I just hope that I can get him to focus um, before I, before at the time in my life when I started to really focus on improvement, whatever that be. Yeah, I'm interested. So going back when you said, I guess you know, however you define like being poor. Or mm-hmm. like maybe compared to like when you think back on that now, are you thinking? Because I know you said compared to like what you're able to provide for your family now. Did you feel that in comparison to the like people who were around you? Like, did you think that at the time? Where was the yeah. point where you were like, oh, okay? Yeah, I think when we went to middle school, because uh, is when I really noticed it. Because my my elementary school was very much like the people who lived in the apartments in smaller houses near my home. So people might have lived in a house, but it was just a smaller house, and I wasn't like, ooh, impressed. It was the same size as my grandparents' house. Uh, But when we went to middle school is when we ended up mixing with the people who were from the more affluent areas of our city. And so then you realize, like, oh, this person has new shoes every day, or they have two pairs of shoes, right? I would get literally three outfits per week, you know, per year. So I have three different outfits per week. I have to rotate it and a pair of shoes for the whole year. And just seeing someone who had two different pairs of shoes was like amazing to me. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh. So 
that's when the complex of, you know, being, having less than people really set in. I mean, I was friends with some of those people. I got through it, but that's when I really noticed, uh, that it was, it was more comparative, like, right. Uh, we had food always, uh, thinking back on it, it was a lot of spaghetti, uh, a lot of hot dogs, a lot of hamburger helper. But as I got older, my mom progressed in her career and that changed as well too. But in the beginning it was, um, not tough for me, but like not tough for me in terms of what I had was provided, but tough for me to just sit there comparing myself to everyone. Was that something that you ever talked about with any of your peers or was it something that you felt ashamed about? I'm asking because it's interesting hearing you reflect on this now. My family or, you know, my parents had quite a bit of money and, you know, were quite affluent up until basically high school started, you know, they lost everything, filed for bankruptcy. And that's when we moved to California, right? Like, so the convergence point when you and I met in high school and same thing, you know, we, we had a place to live, like we had food, you know, there's obviously a huge spectrum when we talk about, you know, access to resources and stuff. But I felt very acutely aware of the different class that we were in than we had been. And then very much so a different class than the like peers and like friend group that especially like the friend group that we were a part of right and like going over to people's houses and just like being very aware of what they had what their parents had what they could afford the kind of vacations and stuff that they went on and I never talked about it with anyone and felt I remember senior year my mom worked out some kind of a deal I mean and we went to a public school but my mom worked out some kind of a deal with the school because I we couldn't afford like for me to go to prom or graduation tickets or like any of the kind of expenses that come with a traditional high school graduation experience and so the, the school covered all of that and I just remember feeling like oh my god I don't want anyone to find out and now I don't know I feel like a lot of tenderness and kind of sad for that version of myself that she felt like really alone and embarrassed about something that i you don't need to be embarrassed about. So I'm, I'm interested in kind of like your, how you were feeling about it. Yeah. Gosh, no, I never talked to anyone about it because right by the time I even got to know you, uh, you know, I'd learned, figured out how to cope with it in meaning knowing you seeing, Oh, she lives in an apartment too. Like, <laughs> wow. Someone else is like me. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess as kids, you just think if you say to your friend, wow, your house has five bedrooms that they would just think, oh, poor Kenneth. Like, what do you know? And, you know, you just don't think your friends will understand and be excited with you or uh, empathize with you. So, yeah, you just don't talk about it, unfortunately, because I think that our friends that we were friends with, I think they would have been totally accepting and cool and helpful if we needed anything. But, yeah, there's just... That unfortunate shame of everything in your life at that age, if you yeah. don't know someone else is going through it, or I mean, you know, you you have a hair coming and you're on it, you growing your nipple, and you think you're an alien, right. and you find out, oh, like all of us dudes have this. <laughs> Who knew? Oh, oh you God. never actually talked about it. That's why you never know. So yeah, never talked yeah. about it. It would have probably made life a lot easier. Um, so realized. talking about money and talking about body hair. Great. That's yeah. how you're going to raise your kids. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Seriously, whatever your problem is, I mean, talk about your problems, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever that problem is, talk about it because your best friend is probably going through the same thing and doesn't actually, hasn't told you about it yet. Yeah, I feel like kind of this period of time that we're talking about financially for me was really impactful and definitely shaped a lot of my interest in 
like financial literacy and learning this stuff for myself and realizing like I don't have a safety net and I'm paying for everything myself and there's no, you know, and making it made me want to talk about money a lot more openly with people in my life. And I'm very grateful that that's now part of my adult life. But do you talk about money with your friends now? I do now. I've, I know uh, we do, obviously. Yeah. But Yeah. So I bought our, well, we, my wife and I bought our first house four years ago. And when we did it, like I was Googling stuff. My mom never bought her home, her condo she lives in. And so like my grandfather had bought a few houses, my aunt and uncle had. So I Googled stuff and I called them to be like, now alone, does the interest rate change? How much do you have to put down? Like you don't, I don't even know what you should typically put down on a house, right? I'm Googling it. I'm asking uh, our friend Jonathan uh, and he's like, I don't know. I mean, they say this percent, they say that percent. It's just this, it's this taboo subject that, I mean, we're just afraid to talk about. It's not, you know, it's not your private parts. It's literally something that could screw you for the rest of your life if you make the wrong decisions. Right. This is not a nipple hair. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and people know that you save up tens of thousands of dollars for a house. It's not some secret. So why is it so shameful for me to say, hey, guys, I have only saved $32,000. Is this enough? Mm-hmm. And to have that conversation. Uh, but yeah, it was hard. And ever since that, and then our friend Jonathan now buying a house, we I try to talk to him about as much of the stuff as I can, if not just to bounce stuff off of him to, to see if I'm crazy or not, uh, whether that be refinancing a house or investing in something, or do I just keep stuff in a savings account or do I invest in the market? And if I invest in the market, where do I even start? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, that's, yeah, something that you and I have been talking about this year. I remember my friend Iris, she, when she sent me, um, she and I both use a software called YNAB, You Need a Budget. It's like budgeting software and that we both like love and are very budget nerds. And she sent me a breakdown of like, here's all my budget categories. And I don't even know that there were numbers attached to it necessarily, but it was this kind of like vulnerable, let's share what our financial priorities are, like what even are the line items in your budget? And it felt like such a like sweet, lovely and unique get to know you thing that's made me curious, like, oh my God, I want to see everyone's budget again, like with or without the like actual money. But I'm just so curious, you know, what people spend their money on and yeah, like having that have a place in in friendships to talk about. Yeah, yeah, right. It, I'm not familiar with the app you're talking about, but I had created a spreadsheet it was actually after we bought our house because we used all of our cash for the down payment and then basically furnished the house or half of it uh, with a credit card uh, with the intent to pay it back in about a year. But it got it got f- deeper than we thought uh, it would. And so we really had to just budget and we put line items for stuff and we're like, look at all this other junk we're wasting our money on. Uh, and it was quite eye-opening to do that. So, uh, yeah, just having a budget and seeing what you're spending your money on. It's not all wasteful. It's not fair to say wasting money is really eye opening. It can help you and it helped me pull back on certain things that I was, uh, wasteful with. What's something that you totally love spending money on that's really worth it to you. And then what's something that you've realized, Oh, spending money on this doesn't really make me happy. I don't really care. I'm not going to do that anymore. (sighs) Gosh, I I think like 
I don't know, garage stuff, air quotes, for those watching this on video. Um, (laughs) As as there's no video, sure. Um, And I say garage stuff, meaning bicycles, um, scooters for myself and or my son, uh, lawnmowers, brakes that will then make an improvement that I can see, yes, if I buy a bicycle, that will improve my life and make me happier or get me more exercise. I have no problem buying some of that stuff. Actually, the hardest thing for me to buy, like pay extra money for is food. Hmm. Yeah, as as aware of the benefits of healthy food as I am, it's just still hard for me to buy a kombucha that's $3.50, even though it's way better than for me than drinking a soda. I'm just still like, oh gosh. And I buy that's them all the interesting. time. That's yeah. interesting. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think that through college, I ate, I mean, I ate hot dogs and chicken and rice for 90% of the meals that I cooked myself in college. And, you know, one of those meals is about a dollar twenty-five, right? If I'm eating four hot dogs with only ketchup and mustard on them, uh, you know, you buy them at Winco, uh, the cheapest place ever. And yeah, at the most, it's $1.50 for that meal. And I was surviving quite well on that. So today, with my 35-year-old body, obviously I can't eat that stuff as frequently. It's just, yeah, it still kills me to go to the grocery store and spend more than $150, even though it's for two weeks or a week worth of groceries. Yeah, that that's interesting. I have been thinking, so for the last what, year or two, other than a couple of months, I haven't paid rent because I've either been living in the van, which is rent-free, and I don't have a like a vehicle payment. It was paid for in full. And, you know, then during most of COVID, living with my partner's dad, and that also was free, right? He doesn't have a mortgage on his house and let us live there for free, which was incredible. And I almost feel like it's fucked me in that now I'm like, I never want to pay rent. I never want to have a mortgage. It's almost like when you were saying, well, I used to only spend a dollar per meal. Like once you realize that you can sort of get away with spending less on certain things. I don't know. (laughs) I know it's not exactly what you said, but I I keep thinking, man, what would it take for me to be like, yes, I am willing to pay for housing? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm going through the same thing with eventually buying a new car. We haven't had a car payment for about two and a half years. And yeah, to think, oh my gosh, like we're having another child, but we still need a new car. No, we don't need it yet. Yeah. It's going to be a lot. A big internal struggle to add that extra cost to your life, right? Yeah. yeah. So you've been married for what nine years now? <laughs> yeah. yeah, nine years. Yes, nine, nine years. years. Nine yeah. years in March. And together with your wife for about fourteen years. Yeah. I'm doing math. Yes, oh seven yeah. is when we met. Yeah. Yeah, fourteen years. First of all, that's like an like an unfathomable amount of time for me to think about being with one person. So congrats on that. Thank you. Why is marriage something that you wanted? I I don't know if it's something that I grew up saying, like, I'm going to marry this person and everything is, we're going to have the house with the white picket fence. But I think, uh, so I had a girlfriend, a serious girlfriend in college my junior year, and I kind of let the relationship go longer than it should have. Mm. Uh, like, I ignored red flags. And not red flags, she wasn't a bad person, but just 
relationship red flags like this, you know, I'm not happy doing this, but I'm just doing it because it's convenient. And when I ended that, I told myself that whoever I meet next, as soon as there's a red flag, like think about it and then get out because it's just, you're wasting their time and you're wasting your time. And at the same, and all during that, you're, um, you know, you're building up some expectation of something that you know ultimately isn't going to be there. And the next person I met was my now wife. And I just went through the, my little phase of, hey, if you see a red flag, pull out, stop it. And it just progressed and progressed. And I finished school a year or so before her, no, two years before her, a year or so into our relationship. And we were like, hey, let's do this long distance, right? I didn't think that I was going to be there uh, at that point, at that step when it came to me graduating. But when the time came, it just felt right to do it. And then before she graduated, we'd kind of planned on her moving in with me. And I think that when I saw her moving in with me in my head, I was kind of like, yeah, well, I think I do want to marry this person. Not that I had some list of things that she must check off when it, uh, for me to get to that point, but it just came to me. Yeah. So yeah. So then we, I asked her mom if that was cool and I got the okay. Don't know if I would have still done it if she said no. I don't think she would have said no, but uh, yeah. So then I've, I think maybe like five or so months after she graduated and she had moved in, I proposed. And as you can see, she said, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it was just, I don't know. I, it's just, just something that like grew into happening and just was exactly what we wanted. I wanted and it has continued to be something I wanted to this point. But yeah, I, I, it's just one of the things when you ask, like, you know, why do you love someone? It's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I haven't written yeah. down a list. It's just this feeling and it's good. And all, almost everyone in my family, my mom's sisters and then my dad's brother and sister have all gotten divorced. So my life, like everything in my life, the marriages that I knew most, like I've all ended. So I'm I'm not in this, I'm surprised I'm not afraid of marriage more, but also I see, I think I learned from all of their marriages as well. Mm -hmm. And so why I'm maybe not afraid of it myself. I remember a couple weeks ago we were on the phone and I had the realization that in the time that you and Dominique have been together. I started and ended like a three and a half year relationship, then had a five year marriage, then got divorced and have now been with my current partner for over two years. And that's like, just when I think of the amount that I have changed and grown, the amount of like decently length, right? Like serious relationships that I have had in that period of time, it just feels, I know it feels so wild. And this might be a question that is hard to answer along the lines of, you know, why do you love someone? Because it's like quite a big question, but I'm interested in like the growth and evolution of your relationship, like of your marriage, how you've been able to grow together over such like a long and I don't know, formative period of time in your twenties and thirties. 
I know we changed so much during that time. I'd love if there are any specific examples that you can give of like a few key growth points for you two. Like when you think about times when the relationship had to evolve or when you went through periods of struggle and had to navigate that, what comes to mind for you as an example? Yeah. Um, and I know we talked about this a little bit the other day, but I didn't even think about this stuff is so she graduated. So one, she's more mature than I am. Uh, you know, generally she's mature for her age, even though now it's not a big difference, but at the time she was three years younger than me or is. So she's more mature. I'm less mature. So we probably, uh, for my age. So we probably matched up perfectly at the time where, when we started dating and then, you know, that, yeah. Cause like you said, people, when they meet so young, they can grow apart so easily, but when we, when she graduated, she started nursing school. She was working part-time and nurse and going to school as I was kind of supporting us. And then after she, so I say that kind of kept us together and growing together, right? Figuring out how do you as a young couple survive when one of you is literally like the breadwinner. It's weird to say it now, but we actually had this conversation the other day about like, hey, there was a time where I was just fully supporting you and it was never a problem, mm-hmm. right? And you hear so much about like, God, oh, I'm, I'm just tired of you not doing anything from someone's spouse and I'm putting in all this work. But it was never an issue. Maybe it was because we were just having so much fun together. Uh, maybe it was just because I understood it was temporary. But then she graduated school. I got laid off from my job. So it she didn't get a job right away, but it turned into like, oh, now I'm the vulnerable one because I got laid off. Now we have to figure this out together. Mm-hmm. And we were both scrambling to get it done, right? Figure out like first jobs we get, we're going to, we're going to get these jobs. She actually took a job up in Fresno, California. So we were going to move to Fresno and uh, I didn't have a job. I was just going to move up there. Let's figure it out together. And then a week after she got her offer, I got a job at my current employer down in Southern California. And we were like, uh, what do we do? And uh, she was a school nurse. So we're like, let's do it for nine months. So I moved in with my grandparents. She moved in with her mom. And we drove to see each other every weekend about. Wow. Yeah. So I just feel like we've, and then we, she moved down. Uh, we went through that growth period together of us finding an apartment in Westchester. Uh, then we moved here to South Carolina a year and a half later. So we've just been going through big steps of figuring stuff out together. A lot of big, big games that required big teamwork. Uh, so maybe that's what's kept us, you know, going through it together and like being our own champions and just staying I don't know. I don't know if you say staying exciting, like exciting marriages don't fail or anything, but uh, it's just like we're always going through it. And, you know, two years ago, we then had our first child. Now let's figure this out together. Right, right. Have our second child. Let's figure this out together. So I don't know. Interesting. It's it's almost like a theme of like continual problem solving together. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, they say continuous growth, right? Yeah. Is, Is important. And Maybe we're growing, but I think what you're saying is that problem solving, right? Because we're growing a little, but I wouldn't say every one of those points taught us some big lesson. It's just more like, ah, oh, we just made it through that together. Good. Mm-hmm. Like, let's let's go to the next thing now. 
Yeah, it's really interesting when you were saying about the you got a job and she got a job and they weren't in the same city. And so instead of trying to decide, okay, whose career comes first, you both took the jobs and moved in with your respective families and made the decision to sort of sacrifice the proximity of your relationship to be long distance, which those aren't easy decisions to make. I'm always curious how people navigate that thing of whose career comes first. Is that something that comes up for you for you two outside of that one instance? Yeah, it comes up all the time. And at that time, it was a, hey, we're going to see who likes their job more mm. or who likes their job less. It was probably more on the who likes their job less because we didn't want to make the decision, oh, hey, I like mine more, so you have to come to me. So it would just be, hey, like, I'm 7 out of 10 happy. You're 8 out of 10 happy. Logically, it makes sense that I give mine up to, you know, for the better of the group. And uh, we've had to make that same decision when we decided to move uh, to South Carolina. Because, you know, we both luckily were bored in our uh, roles. And my company could relocate us. Different roles, same company. And it was like, hey, do you want to move somewhere? A few cities were on the list, and this is the one that we said, yeah, let's do it. And so we made that decision sort of together, and boom, here we go. So yeah, um, yeah, those decisions, are they're not easy, and it's when we make them, we're having the conversation about both of our careers, right? What does this mean for her? As a nurse, it was easier right? To get a job anywhere we go. But now that she's in management, the question is, if we relocate again, do you have to go back to floor nursing? And if so, is that something you want to do? Because if it's not and you have to, then maybe we don't move uh, for Mm -hmm. the betterment of your career and what you want to do. Yeah. And there aren't necessarily easy answers. It sounds like it's just an ongoing conversation. And, you know, what is worth it to sacrifice at one point might not be worth it at another point. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I think that, you know, now now we have children, right? So the question now is, okay, if I have to go to floor nursing, you know, now I may have to be working on a Saturday and a Sunday, where before that wasn't an issue, because then you get a Monday and a Tuesday off. But now it's, you know, not spending time with the family while we're at the pool uh, on the weekend. So mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of, a lot of more, lot more variables come up as you just go through the journey. Tell me about the point in your marriage when you decided to have kids. Is that something that you always knew that you wanted? Sidebar, this is all like very fascinating to me. One of the, I could have said this at the top of the episode, one of the things that I love a lot about our friendship is we have made, if you like were to make a list of kind of the the big adulting choices, right? About like marriage or kids or, you know, a more traditional career path. You and I have made different decisions on almost every one of those. And so I'm very like nosy and fascinated about all of your choices. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting one. You know, we like, we weren't the type of couple that talked about, Oh, when we get married, it's going to be blank before we were engaged. And we didn't really do that with kids much. We did talk about it, like, Hey, like, do you want to have kids? And at what point, because obviously you want to be on the same wavelength before you end up getting married. But, you know, one of our goals was, hey, we have to just own a house, own a home. Didn't have to be a house before we do that. We have to have some sort of 
stability for any child we bring into the world. So that was the early conversation. I didn't think about it much after that, uh, but as soon as we had our home under our feet and we'd purchased it, she was like, okay, so when are we going to have kids? (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I was like, oh, well, hold on one second. And I think we ended up having Winston a year and a half later. But yeah, it was something that, you know, she held me to and I, it not hold me to sounds like I didn't want to, but yeah, I, we, that's when we did it. And that's how the conversations came about and kind of the same thing for the second one. Like, have we stabilized our lives? Are we able to add another child into this? Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's go. What were your fears about having kids before Winston was born? Oh, gosh, I didn't, so cliche, right? But I wanted to be able to provide more for him than I had. Uh, and that, and, and I don't mean so much financially, right? Because we talked about that before, but I always had this fear of instability. Like, I mean, my mom will never listen to this, so she won't be embarrassed. But like, there were times when she, we didn't even have the registration on our car. And I knew that in the state of California, that if you don't have insurance and registration, then your car will just get towed if you get pulled over. Or they could just pull you over for expired tax and take your car. So like when I would be getting taken to like track practice, I'm worried about getting like our car taken away and not being able to get to school the next day. Um, So like that's the majority of my worries when it comes to Winston and what he has and what I can provide to him. I mean, my mom was a, I had a very loving family. I, you know, it wasn't abusive, nothing bad like that, that I just hope to, you know, be better than for him. But yeah, just to give him, to take that worry of losing everything off of his mind that I had a lot from like middle school on when I kind of understood it to be a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of glance at like my dad was not a dad to me either. I didn't miss it because I left him when I was three. So I didn't know him. But later in life, I did have a few like bouts of crying about, you know, the lack of that in my life. So I, I, I obviously just, I try to be the best, like loving, fun, thoughtful daddy that I can be to him. Whether that's, you know, you want to go kick the soccer ball around or, you know, do you want to paint? type stuff, whatever it is. I just want him to have a feeling of comfort in me that I always watched my friends with dads around and just be like, oh man, like his dad could just pick him up from school. <laughs> like, I wish I had that. So I just hope to be that for him. Mm-hmm. Specifically for you, what would you say are some of the best aspects of having a kid as well as the hardest parts? <laughs> to pro con list on kids. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, I'll start with the hardest because like you will never be prepared for it in any aspect. Like you are more tired, you're m- just drained, you worry more than you would ever think you would worry about a child. Yeah, so just from the get-go, from two and a half years ago to now, I still don't have the same energy that I had a week before having him because you're just, I mean, you're just on edge all the time in a good way, in a like, how can I make sure he's okay? 
way, but whether it's having to wake up at 645, because that's just the time that his clock turns him on, or it's, you know, oh, he has soccer today at school. I hope he likes it because last time he cried and was worried and didn't like it. So you, you just are, you know, 40% of your energy is now pointed at this person and you still have to do 100% of the other stuff you had to do in life. Mm. That's the hardest. Everything else is just so cool about it. Uh, he, we... You know, does he look like me? Does he look like Dominique? Is he's rambunctious and crazy, just like me? I love that. That's hilarious. You know, he when he's starting to put together sentences, you just look at him like he's an alien because you're like, I didn't teach you that. Like you just watch this talk like that, and then you've repeated it in context, uh, which is just amazing. I think seeing their growth, and that's growth physically. That's crazy and exciting. Intellectually. Or just like the way that you see that like he like loves us, which is kind of weird because, you know, you don't teach him, oh, hey, you love your mommy because she picks you up and gives you a kiss and then puts you down to bed. And, you know, that repeated action is something that you will then eventually like appreciate. It's just he has this weird like he'll just say like, I love you, daddy, to me. It'll, like, I don't know if he's just saying it randomly or if he's feeling it, but it's just the little stuff that you get out of them like that that just makes it so exciting and like you just want to see it again and feel it again the next day <sighs> i like hearing you talk about this it's, very, <laughs> it's no it's like really sweet your voice takes on a different quality like it's yeah as as an outside observer this is something that i very much like hearing you talk about appreciate it I'm interested in the identity change for you. I've talked to some of my friends about the process of becoming a mom and, you know, all the things they love about it, but then the sort of grieving process of grieving who you were as more of a single person or who you were before. What was the transition like, or I guess, you know, still like you're a couple years into it of becoming a dad for you? Was there any kind of grief of, former life or identity what's the what has the identity change been like oh it hasn't been bad i don't think i <laughs> you know me and i have explained enough i hope to the listeners that i'm you know the wild one in the bunch i am the least stable one maybe and so i think when people see me as a dad they're like oh exciting like fun he's gonna calm down and this child is just going to have a lot of fun with him. And so I get a lot of that from people. And so I met with a lot of excitement with it. I mean, we all know people who and are having kids and you're like, oh gosh, <laughs> like this person probably shouldn't have a child, but good luck for them. And I just, I feel like, you know, maybe people say that behind my back, but what I met with verbally is just like a pure excitement for everyone. So it is like, oh, I've come back and I've, you know, I've won the championship. So people just want to talk to me about it because people just always want to talk to me about Winston and hear about Winston. So it's it been an, an added exciting part of my life mm. that other people like. So yeah, it is draining and tiring. And now I am, you know, a father who has to do stuff for someone else all the time. But there's, I'm just riding this wave of excitement from my family and my coworkers and friends that I'm just going to keep riding. Yeah, it's it's. I didn't know that that's what you were going to say. Obviously, 
it's interesting in me when you say that I feel almost a little bit jealous. I mean, that's not the path for me, like having kids, doing, you know, doing those things. I'm very clear that it, that's not the path, but there is something to be said for how socially rewarding it is to make what other people think are the right and successful choices, which I I'm, I'm, I don't mean to put words into your mouth. That's not exactly yeah. what you said, but that thing where other people are excited and where they can understand. Like, I feel really loved and supported by friends and family. And yet I feel like a lot of the people in my life, there's sort of some kind of barrier between us where they like look at my life choices and they're like, okay, like they don't really get it or they very much wouldn't make those same choices for themselves. And so it provides sometimes like a little bit of a barrier to that level of excitement that you're talking about. Yeah. Ooh, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> right. Here, analyze <laughs> well, this. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> well, at the same time, um, there's no doubt that I look at the, some of the stuff you do in your life as more successful than mine. Like how cool is it that you get to drive across the country and live in a van and you know if you want just what is it what is the the game where you hit with the paddles ding 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 whack-a-mole sure you just get to bounce around the country if you want right i'm trying to figure out how on earth i can just go on a three-day vacation with our friend jonathan in october and it's like the craziest event that I'm going to do in the past like three years, mm -hmm. that would be no issue for you. Uh, you get to go on these awesome month plus long hikes and just be out there with yourself and people you meet and experience nature and the world in a way that I never will be able to. And I will never be filled in that same way that you are fulfilled. So yeah, it's easy or it's easier to look at it like, Oh, like, people who are becoming parents, but I'm not. But you have people who are looking at the stuff that you do that may have been, oh, that was just something I did three years ago is something that I look at and say, God, I wish that someday I could just do that. But there's no way, given my life choices, that I'll ever be able to do that. So yeah. I just have to look back at your Instagram posts about it. And sure, it. sure. I, I know. I mean, it is interesting, right? The way that we, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but the way we just compare ourselves to each other. I feel like mm -hmm. that's a very human thing to do to just, and that we can't have all the things. So at any point along the way, we're saying, okay, this thing or this experience or this life path or job or whatever is worth more to me than sort of the doors that I'm closing in order to have it. And that's what all of these decisions are, essentially. I think it's interesting that you said before that you feel like, you know, the least stable one in the bunch, so to speak, because when I think about you and your choices, they all seem to me to be based like heavily around the prioritization of stability. Yeah, you're right. Um, in that the choices that I ultimately make do, right? Like my career path is work for a very large company that is very stable and will be less likely to go under than family business that may pay more. Um, but I think in my mind, I'm just all over the place and I don't know what I'm doing and I'm figuring it out along the way. So that's maybe where my definition of myself as unstable comes. Um, but yeah, you're right. I do take the, uh, not the easy route, but the more stable, slower paced route that I know will be there uh, so mm -hmm. that I cannot be in the same financial 
point that my mother was in while raising me. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it makes sense, right? I feel it, it's, it is interesting too how the decisions that we make in response to our upbringing, right? Because I mean, obviously you and I had different upbringings, but there, from what we both shared, you know, with each other, even just in this conversation, there was an element of financial insecurity in both of our upbringings at a similar age. And that that seems to, and I, I know I'm oversimplifying this, but that seems to have put you on a path of, wow, I want to do whatever I can to like be in a more stable place where I own the home and I, you know, have the, the corporate career and like these types of things. And for me, it was almost the complete opposite of how do I need as little as possible or like never be in the position where I could lose everything the way that my parents did because I don't have a lot to lose. And there's definitely like some not great stuff about like that element for me that I'm still unpacking. But I think it's it's interesting who we become in response to our upbringing. Yeah, very true. Yeah, that's, I mean, and I think we've both done the right thing for ourselves. Right? Totally. And yeah, I could have, I could easily see myself saying like, look, let me make it simple so that let me make my life as simple as possible so that the risks that I want to take if they don't pan out, then, hey, I'm only falling back on zero debt rather than a whole house that I have under mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah. What do you feel like right now at, you know, this time in your life is your definition of success for yourself? Oh, geez. It's such, it's a moving target. It really is. I used to say to a co, I, I used to think that, hey, when I own a house, family or not, when I own a home, then that means that I've reached where I need to be. I did that. Obviously, you know, the cheese has moved. I used to talk to a coworker about, hey, if we just reach this amount of money on a sal- from a salary standpoint, like what how else much, do you How need? much was it? <laughs> it was um, $100,000. I said, if we ever reach that amount of money, that's all we'll ever need to make. Because what else do you need, right? Our mortgages are this. Uh, We're not going on extravagant this or that. Uh, We both had spouses who actually have an income, so why else would you need anything more? And as you approach that in your actual career, you're like, wait, one, I never thought I would be at this point. But now, like, what is the next step? How do I get beyond that? And it's not that I watch, you know, <laughs> MTV Cribs and want some mansion, but it's just a matter of like you see someone else at your own company who is as, you know, who you may be as smart as or smarter at a higher level than you. And you're like, well, why can't I just do what she's doing and just make X amount more so that I can, you know, maybe just add it to the coffers? But it's just this odd. There's something in front of me and ahead of me that will always be not unreachable because I don't sleep at night hoping to make more money, dreaming about more money and how I can achieve it. But sometimes it just seems achievable and you're like, well, why don't I just give some more effort to get that? Mm. Do you think... I mean, if the target keeps moving, and I mean, this isn't just you, right? This is all of us Mm -hmm. to some degree, right? This is capitalism to some degree, to every degree, that what is the enough point? I don't know. I I hope that that, I, I don't have an answer to that. I hope it is when my children are, when I can look at 
what I need to provide for them that the pace that I'm on will get them there. Mm-hmm. Whether that's whether I say, hey, I just want to be able to have $50,000 for both of my children when they graduate from college or high school, just to help them, whether it's a school or they want to use it for a house, whatever. You know, maybe in four years, I can look at how much I'm making and the savings plans we have set up for both of them. And that's something that's going to easily be achieved. And I say, all right, well, how do I throttle down the engines and just coast in my current role or just bounce around with, sounds bad, but less ambition career-wise and just find That doesn't sound bad to me at all. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, yeah, it sounds bad in my career field, right? That's how I'm sort of conditioned to just, you know, be happy not continue to try to grow, grow, grow. So I become someone who's working on Saturday and Sundays because that's not fun. And that's not what I want for myself or my family. Yeah. I am making a mental note in four years to follow up with you about this because I think, I don't know. I just have some curiosity around if we, if the target constantly moves, what stops the target from continuing to move unless we make some kind of real effort or real internal shift or change to decide, okay, this is what enough is, right? Because if it used to be, okay, owning the house, that's going to be the thing. And then it's, you know, the $100,000 salary, that's going to be the thing or, you know, and then you get there and then there's like, there's no shortage of dangling carrots, right? That can go Mm -hmm. in front of us. And so I'm interested, do you have an idea of what it would take for you? Let's put this hypothetical four year, four years from now, you're on the savings path, right? All the things that you just said have come true, right? Wave the magic wand, manifest that. What would it take for you to be like, okay, yeah, I am going to downshift. Gosh, I think I've been thinking about this already. uh, Because as you know, we're in South Carolina, and this is not where we want to live forever. And we are looking to move, whether that be to back to California or back to the West somewhere and thinking when we find the place we want to be and we have figured out a way to make that financially unstressful for us, I think that's when I'm able to do that. Because now the cost of living here is so low Mm -hmm. that we're just banking savings uh, for the anticipated move back west, which will cost more. So once that happens, once the stress of needing to save goes away and we now see our 30-year mortgage, that mortgage is X amount and that's doable. And we now know, I'll just say, let's just say $3,000, whatever. We now know all we need is $3,000 for this house every month plus XYZ uh, for our general you know, living expenses then you can say, oh, well, if we're making $9,000 a month, like, what are we killing ourselves to do that? Mm-hmm. Like, let's pull back and so we can enjoy more, so we can go to soccer games, so we can go to piano recitals, so we can just hang out in the backyard at 4.30 in the afternoon rather than looking at my phone and seeing if my boss needs something. Yeah, I just wonder, and there's no way that you can answer this now, so I guess we shall see in the future. I'm interested how hard that actually is to turn off. Because if that's been the conditioning of like an entire adult life and career, and that's what's rewarded in the workplace to get to the point where, oh, I'm just not going to check my phone to see if I heard from my boss. Like, I wonder if that's, I mean, I know that it's possible, but I, I 
think there's something in that that's we'll see is interesting yeah yeah I'll, I'll, I'll let you know if i find it what is it that makes you want to leave south carolina it's the south like it's the american south there are confederate flags everywhere it is i mean i'm from we are from california i went to college in portland so uh, i'm used to a very diverse place and this is not uh it's black literally black people and white people here and it is very divided in a lot of ways and it's just something that has since the day we moved here it's like it just takes a toll on you mm-hmm. and you see it not i mean obviously seeing a confederate flag on a car is like oh my gosh like where are we but I mean, even the local news, right? I mean, yes, people of all colors and sizes uh, commit crime, but I just noticed that when it's a black kid, they show the photo, you know. But when it's just when it's not, they just will just mention that a car got broken into and the mm-hmm. person was apprehended. So it's just cultural backwardsness of where we are. And I mean, lovely place. Our neighbors are nice. We live in a newer neighborhood that has younger people uh, a lot of transplants right so that always makes it easier that your little bubble is safe but you know you go outside of that bubble and you don't know what you're gonna find unfortunately and i just just tired of seeing it um and not to say that it's not in california where we were where we grew up or it's not in you know portland where i went to college but it just there was enough of the side that makes me comfortable and happy to drown out the others. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want my son to be in a place where, I mean, and I mean, we live like 10 miles away from plantations. Yeah. Like that's just really weird to uh, I mean, my great, great grandparents were slaves. Right. So, and from like two hours away from here. So it's just really weird for me to just drive by a place and says, Oh, Middleton plantation. It's like, nah, this shouldn't be celebrated. <laughs> yeah. This is hard. It's very hard for me. Yeah. And like you said, it's not that going to California is like the magic land where none of that exists. But if within your own power, you can pull the levers to put yourself and your kids in an environment that isn't like that and that doesn't have that, you know, why not do that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I want to go back. You mentioned before having gone to college on a football scholarship. Mm-hmm. When we met, I, I mean, I mostly knew you as my best friend's new boyfriend, right? That was my first association. <laughs> and then kind of as the like fun-loving jock, right? Like Kenneth, the football player. Mm-hmm. I, in a recent conversation we had, realized that you first ran track, that it was like track more than it was football. And mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, do you have, like, what are your first memories of being like, oh, I'm a good athlete? Gosh. Was Uh, there a point where it was either like a coach or a thing? Someone said that to you and you're like, this could be something? Yeah. Well, there was a point in seventh grade-ish. I I did hurdles too, um, not just sprints. So I'm a sprinter. You're trying to visualize me. (laughs) Just visualize. (laughs) To put this voice on someone running really fast. Yeah. Thick (laughs) athlete. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, Across short distances only. Yeah, so in the hurdles, I did well, uh, and I was fast-ish. But when it came to a sprint, not so much. Uh, and then eighth grade, I like was just really blowing the competition away in the hurdles. 
I was winning some more sprints and then long jump. I was doing really well too. So not just the straight ahead fast stuff, but some stuff that took a little more skill. And what is it? We went through the sort of regular track league championships of me just killing people. And one of the coaches from uh, one of the Valley teams, which is the majority black athletes, and my team was the majority white athletes, uh, and then myself, the black person, like said something to my mom, like, hey, we could take this kid and, uh, and you know, try to go to the Junior Olympics. And I, my mom said, asked me if I wanted to. And I'm like, sure. Yeah, the guy seems nice. Like, and I've seen the people that are on that track team. So, yeah, let's keep doing it. So I went and trained with them a summer. Uh, and it was the same summer that I started playing football for the first time. And I was like slowly becoming a starter on the football team as I was doing that extra training and track. And like, I just started winning these meets with like bigger, faster people. And that's when I started like getting, you know, <laughs> probably started getting a little too cocky with myself too, because of that success that started to come on at that point. But that's when it really started to hit when I was winning against people uh, in track that I'd never beat. And then in football, like me being this dude who just started playing a month ago, like, being the starter on the team was kind of mm-hmm. it was kind of great. <laughs> What's it like to have something right like sports athletics be such a defining and reliable, consistent part of your life for I mean years and years and years, and then to graduate college and have it just stop? Not that I mean I know that you're active now, but to stop in that sort of like structured, maybe glorified way that you were just talking about what was that like for you to kind of leave that behind i was very happy to interesting okay i wouldn't have thought that you would have said that okay yeah Um, tell me more because of just i don't know why but i hated using my body to get myself through whatever i just was tired i didn't get a so at the end of my athletic career was mainly football because that's what got me into college so i'm not the typical jock who like wants to be in the nfl Uh, and that is what everyone on every college football team is no offense to the other one person who isn't is listening but and i just i don't know i don't know that anyone who thought they were maybe going to be in the nfl is 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 listening to this not to paint with a broad brush but you are out definitely outside of my like regular audience listenership good Um, But I hated the type of people. I mean, I had a few friends who were, you know, more like me and we can, you know, we got along. But the majority was me just fighting against the expectation that I'd be, you know, only into football, want to hit people as hard as I can. And, you know, all I cared about was winning. Like, yes, I cared about not wasting my time. So winning a game was better than losing a game. But at the end of the day, like I could sprain an ankle and it could all be over. So Mm. I didn't put all my eggs in that basket ever. And I think that that people could see that and feel that. And, um, I didn't like fit in. So when I finished football, I was, I didn't watch college football. I didn't watch NFL football for a few years because it was just so irritating to me because I was just seeing the people that I hated from college not actually, but I was just imagining like, oh, like this person was probably at a college and was mean to the, you know, normal kid on the team too. So I just really distanced myself from it. 
but yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't hard for me. <laughs> that That's interesting. I mean, this sort of picture that we've been painting or in like the stories that you've been telling, it seems like a lot of the choices that you've made have been towards having more stability, like being able to provide this kind of life for yourself and for your family, right? And these things along the way. And it makes a lot of sense when you just said, hey, you could be really good at this. And then you sprain your ankle and it's all over. There's something that's really unstable in that. Mm-hmm. Like that, yeah, that, that makes sense to me that that's something that you would be like, it's it's like the stakes are too high almost. And the the lack of sort of being more well-rounded that it sounds like you were craving. Yeah. And I mean, I never truly thought I would be an NFL football player, but people did tell me that I could. And I mean, I actually talked to an NFL team about where they may call me after the draft and a, like nothing about that was exciting to me. Cause I'm like, look, maybe I will make it onto your team. Maybe I have to fly out to the East coast and go to your mini camp. And you may give me, tens of thousands of dollars, which is way more than I would have ever had in my life. And maybe I make $150,000 for a year or two. But that stops when some other young guy who's taller and faster than me comes in and completely out of my power. And now I have not had the internships that I needed, not had the job experience that I needed. And now I'm trying to be, get into the real world with no idea what it's like. Mm-hmm. So like that right there is why I was like, no, nah, I'm not really going to do this. I, I did the, what is that called? The combine stuff. I did the 40 meter or 40, is it yards? <laughs> That's I, how long you're asking I me. I, I don't, I don't know about any sort of like football yeah, situation. I, I did all the 40 yard dash, the pro day, the bench pressing, the all that junk. And I was just like, all right, cool. Are we done? And I just left right to then go to my human resources internship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I was never. I, I never wanted that for myself. My brother is probably still disappointed in me, but <laughs> too bad. Do you? So you think that it was something that people around you wanted for you, but not something that you wanted for you? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's brave to be able to s- say actually no. Yeah, thank you. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I just I had my other priorities. <laughs> and that priority being stability. <laughs> yeah. And I went and went after that. Do you feel that you have achieved that goal of having a stable life? No, I don't think so. Because I always think, and this probably had to do with me being laid off that one time, because it was literally them saying, hey, this whole department, we're just going to outsource it. So I always think that that could happen to me at any time. So whether I'm doing something that nobody's ever done before at the company, or I've done something that was so difficult, no one can imagine how I did it by myself. I am still like, yeah, but that doesn't save me because tomorrow they can decide that they're just not in need of this organization. Yeah. Yeah. So fear is always there for me. How do you combat that? Because I mean, and (laughs) Obviously, I don't live inside your head, so what I'm saying, what I'm going to say next is like quite a projection, but I don't see you as someone who like lays awake at night, like gripped with anxiety of, oh my God, you know, that and maybe, maybe you do, maybe this is like your secret thing that happens, but it seems like you're able to handle this well. Yeah. I mean, I do have anxiety a lot and I keep, I mean, I talk to my wife about it. I talk to Jonathan about it a lot um, from time to time, but 
yeah, I, I, there is that in me. I will have panic attacks about certain things um, that I can't control. I, from starting in high school, I started having these anxiety attacks where I'd have a small dream about just something really mundane. Like, can you put this circle through this square hole? And it's just like, I can't do it. Like, I just, there's no way I can do this. I, I know you want me to, but I just can't. And it would be like crippling and I would wake up and I would just have to stay awake. I'd try to keep myself awake because if I fell back asleep, I'd go right into this dream. And I think it's from just that, like, how do I, how do I get to this goal in my life? Or how do I keep this job in the panic and failure that that could, um, cause if I don't. Um, but yeah, I still have struggles and still think about that a lot, but I, you know, as you say, I do a good job of covering it up and being happy otherwise, but it's something that's always in the back of my head. Well, and I, I don't know that covering it up is necessary, right? Like you're allowed to be anxious and be who you are. I I mean, I don't, I'm certainly not asking for you to like pretend, right. I very much appreciate your honesty around this type of stuff, especially because, I don't know. It's it's like not very sexy to not have answers to things. And yet all of us, mm-hmm. to some degree, are struggling with these same questions. Like, what kind of life do I want to provide for myself and my loved ones? You know, what is my career path? What is enough money? What is gonna, What is it going to take for me to be able to take the big exhale and like feel like I'm okay? Like, these yeah. are real questions. Right. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, everyone wants to be the guest on your podcast and just have oh, well, I thought about it this way, and this is why I did it, and this is why I'm going to be perfect in the future. But nobody has everything uh, lined up and ready for them to just knock down. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with, I reached out to a a random person from high school because they posted a story about like being vulnerable and talking about like your failures so people can learn from it or something. And I'm like, yes, like (laughs) if we could just talk about this stuff more, we would all understand how we're all afraid of the same stuff mm-hmm. and we're all going through these struggles. And whether that be like, Hey, um, you know, all I want is to get braces. And I just think everybody hates me because of my bad teeth or perceived bad teeth. And if you just say that out loud, you might get 20 people who say, I love your teeth. Mm-hmm. Like, They're perfect. Uh, but since you never say that it's something that you need help with or struggle with, no one will ever think to just randomly tell you, oh, no, like, no that, that's perfect. I love it. You're beautiful that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we all struggle, obviously, at younger points of our lives. And it continues today about, you know, oh, my receding hairline. Like, how bad is that? And I talk about it more and we realize, like, people don't care because, yeah, I'm 35. And that's just what happens to dudes when they turn 35. I mean, I had a significant amount of hair loss. It's like mostly stopped, which I'm grateful for. But I think in reaction to like stress and getting divorced and like all the life change and stuff that happened, it was like an acute stress response. And I felt so anxious about it. And so like I didn't, it like made me realize how like that I'm more vain than I thought that I was. And being Mm -hmm. able to talk about it with other people who have been through similar things was really helpful. And once I started talking about it more publicly, I did get messages from people of like, oh my God, my hair's falling out too. And I know that's just like one small example, but I agree with you that there's a lot of power in just being honest about what it is that you're going through, even if, and especially if you don't have like the three-step magic answer plan for solving Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that's why I love 
the aspect of social media where someone who is struggling through something can just throw it out there and society can normalize it for them so that they don't feel so alone. Like I'm not an overshare on social media. It's just pictures of my son. Um, maybe my wife, maybe me once in a blue moon. But like when I see people with that, like, Oh, here's my struggle and I've gone through and I see someone underneath that just commenting, like you got this. I went through this too. Like I bet that one person saying I'm with you on this helped so much for that person. So I, I, yeah, like I said, I, I think that we're getting better at it, but I do enjoy seeing people share their struggles so that they can. Yeah, I mean, so that's the through line of my it. entire business. So I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's a good place um, for us to start to wrap up. If you could leave folks with one call to action based on our conversation, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Uh, yeah. You don't have to have the perfect plan. You just need to have your plan. Mm -hmm. And whatever that is, you can always change that plan. Yeah, because I have spent a lot of my time in life worrying about setting myself up for future success and then realizing along the way that like, hey, I'm successful now. Um, so just know that you may not achieve that one goal that you set for yourself, but I'm sure you achieved a lot of great stuff along the way. Mm, I love that. Um, I, it's funny, like most of the people that I have on the show, like use social media differently than you do. But like, do you want to share a social media link or something if folks want to say hi? <laughs> sure, if you want to. <laughs> K.R. Mackins uh, on Instagram. Um, I have a Twitter, but I don't use it. So no point in that. But yeah, I'm uh, public. So you can see it. You can... Tell me how horrible my mumbly voice is, or you can uh, say, hey, or just check out what my son looks like. You can go look at pictures of your cute kid. Yes, I yeah. will put that link in the show notes. Kenneth, this was so much fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm so excited we did this. I was very nervous, um, but I've been waiting for this since the day I knew you had a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to this labor of love. Our music and sound editing is by Adam Day, who it has been a total dream and a pleasure to collaborate with for the past six years. And thank you especially to the people on our Patreon community who have made all 200 plus episodes of Real Talk Radio possible. You can find that community of ours at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. It's a wonderful group of folks who crave honesty, intimacy, and possibility, and for whom I love creating essays, live gatherings, exclusive audio content, and more each and every month. If you'd like to join us, I will see you over there, patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette.